Welcome to the Global Treasures Podcast. I'm Abigail Vaca. And I'm Keith Berthiam. We're two wayfarers with a passion for traveling and exploring the incredible sights left behind by our ancestors. We'll spend each episode exploring these places, their history, the stories, the people who built them, restored them, and who now save them for all our benefit. So in case this is the first episode you've had the chance to listen to, or have never heard of the United Nations, we'll start by sharing a bit about what they do as an organization. The United Nations is a global organization made up of 193 participating countries that was founded in 1945 to bring together the world's nations to discuss issues around security, human rights, climate change, and other global issues to work together to find common solutions. One of the bureaus within the United Nations is UNESCO, which stands for the United Nations Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization. It was created to encourage the identification, protection, and preservation of cultural and natural heritage around the world considered to be of outstanding value to humanity. What makes the concept of World Heritage Sites really unique is the idea that these places belong to all people across the globe, no matter where they physically live. This agency provides emergency assistance to sites in imminent danger, protects the properties by providing training to staff that curate and work on the site, and encourages new sites to be nominated for the future. There are currently 1,157 sites across the world, with more being added every year. This ensures that we will not run out of amazing episodes to bring you. Throughout our journey exploring these sites, we're going to release episodes in the order by year the sites were originally added to the UNESCO list, starting with the first ones in 1978. With the introduction out of the way, let's dive in. episode, Keith and I will be introducing you to Quito, Ecuador, which was added to the UNESCO World Heritage List in 1978 and is the capital of Ecuador. It was founded in the 16th century and built upon the ruins of an ancient Incan city. Quito sits at an incredibly high altitude of 9,350 feet, and it was designated as a World Heritage Site for many reasons. The first being is that it was one of the most well-preserved colonial centers in the Americas, rich with 16th and 17th century buildings that reflect European, Moorish, and indigenous architecture called the Quito School. We'll talk more about the sites within the city that make it so unique later in the episode. This city is the closest city to the equator on Earth, as the northern limits of the city are only about six-tenths of a mile from the equator, which I find fascinating. They're proud of this and have their equator-themed museums that you can visit. The city was built in a way to adapt to the fact that it's spread along the slopes of the Pinchincha Volcano. Is the volcano active? I'm getting Pompeii vibes here. Pinchincha is active and being monitored by volcanologists, but the last eruption was 1999. So, Quito is in the northern part of the country with a subtropical climate. 
The average temperature during the day is 70 degrees Fahrenheit and gets down to about 50 degrees Fahrenheit at night. There are two seasons in Quito, the wet season and the dry season. The wet season runs from October to May, so keep that in mind if you're planning a trip. Keith, you're the scientist here. Can you explain how being near the equator affects the weather and all of that? Because Quito is at the equator, they're going to get the same amount of sunlight every single day of the year, about 12 hours. So there's very little temperature difference as a result throughout the year. Because of the location and its diverse geography, Quito is especially vulnerable to any changes in the overall climate. There are seven volcanic glaciers in the area that are all affected by the greenhouse effect. Because of the larger greenhouse effect of increased carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, one of the glaciers has already lost 96% of its surface area. More than half of the rest of the glaciers have already retreated more than 50%. And as far as the altitude goes, as I mentioned before, Quito is the second highest altitude capital city in the world, which further affects the weather. On a side note, if you're traveling here, you may need to prepare for altitude sickness. I've been to Denver, Colorado enough times to tell you that's a real thing. Okay, now on to the meat of why it's a World Heritage Site. Quito City Center has a ton of historical sites and artifacts that were well-preserved, and people can still visit them today. Keith, could you give us a few examples? Sure, I've got about seven different examples that I'd like to share. So the first is Quito's Plaza Grande. Plazas are typical for every Spanish colonial city, and Plaza Grande was the original center for government administration. The plaza, officially Plaza de Independencia, is surrounded by landmarks such as the Crondelet Palace, the Metropolitan Cathedral, the Archbishop's Palace, the Municipal Palace, and the Plaza Grande Hotel. The second site is La Compañía, which is a Baroque neoclassical-style church that has a beautiful gold interior. It is the epitome of over-the-top Latin American colonial Catholicism that took over 160 years to build. If you visit, take the time to walk slowly through to catch the details of the extensive paintings, carvings, and statues, all imbued with symbolism and multiple meanings. It'll all make more sense if you go with a good guide. Another one is the San Francisco Plaza and Church, which is the oldest church in Quito. The Spanish started building it just a month after they took over. One of the most interesting aspects is the integration of local symbols like angels with indigenous features, which was meant to make the Catholic faith seem less radical. If you don't want to go inside, it's worth strolling the plaza anyway and seeing it all from the outside. Another, the Casa de Alabado Museum, contains a selection of fully restored pre-Columbian art pieces from all over South America. The collection contains around 5,000 pieces that date as far back as 7,000 BC. It's a curated exhibition in a historic mission building and is a mere $6 American for admission. If you like shopping, one of Quito's most interesting areas is La Ronda, a cobblestone pedestrian street that has transformed over the last couple of decades to become a delightfully eclectic place to stroll. Many of the craftspeople who have shops here also have a workspace on site where you can see the processes in action. These range from tinsmiths to wooden toy makers to chocolate makers and even artists. On the south side of the old town, perched high on a hill overlooking Quito, is El Penecillo, 
one of the city's top attractions. This major landmark in Quito is home to La Virgen de Quito, a Madonna statue that was constructed in 1976 entirely of aluminum by the Spanish artist Agustin de la Jaran Matoras. The views of Quito and the volcanoes are epic if you can catch a clear day. Be sure to climb the steps up to the base of the statue for the best view. The final site of mention is the convent and monastery San Francisco. Iglesia San Francisco is the largest religious complex in South America. Inside there are numerous wood carvings that are spectacular. Crowning the altar is the famous winged or dancing virgin sculpture by Bernardo de la Garda. This particular virgin can be seen throughout the northern Andes as a popular cult figure. The adjacent museum has an impressive collection of artwork and decor as well. Sounds like there's a lot to do. Do you need tickets to get into these sites in advance? Yeah, quite a few sites require tickets, but seem to be able to be purchased the day of the visit. As with all attractions anywhere in the world, it's probably better to visit the main attractions earlier in the day to avoid the large number of tourists. There are several all-in-one passes that bundle the main attraction sites together, so that would be worth looking into for the traveler who likes to plan ahead and maybe save some money. Got it. Okay, so let's talk about the establishment and history of Quito, as much as we can in a nutshell, given we'll be covering thousands of years' worth of history. So, the oldest traces of human presence in Quito were excavated by American archaeologist Robert E. Bell in 1960 on the slopes of a volcano located between the eastern valleys of Los Chios and Tumbaco. Hunter-gatherers left tools of obsidian glass dating back to 8000 BC. Jumping to colonial times, which is likely the portion of South American history you learned about in school, the Incas were the indigenous inhabitants much like Native American tribes in the United States. The first settlers were the Kyutu people, who were eventually conquered by the Karas culture. Yeah, so like Abigail said, in the 15th century, both the city and the region were conquered by the Inca Empire based in Cusco to the south. Quito prospered under the Incan Empire and soon became the second most important city in the entire empire. Around 1526, Quito was plunged into civil war. Incan ruler Jaina Capac died and two of his many sons, Atahualpa and Huascar, began to fight over his empire. Atahualpa had the support of Quito and Huascar's power came from Cusco. While Atahualpa had the support of three powerful Incan generals, Quisquis, Calcuchima, and Ruminahi. Altahuapa eventually won in 1532 when he defeated Huascar's forces at the gates of Cusco. Huascar was captured and Atahualpa had him executed. Just a note, I probably massacred those names and I didn't mean to, but that's the best I could do. In 1532, Spanish conquistadors under Francisco Pizarro arrived and took Atahualpa captive. He was executed in 1533 which turned Quito against the Spanish invaders as he was still very much loved in the city. Two different expeditions of conquistadors converged in Quito in 1534, led by Pedro de Alvarado and Sebastian de Benocazar. The Quito warriors fought the Spanish at every single opportunity. One of the most notable battles was the Battle of Teocajas. 
When Benalcazar arrived at the city, he found it already raised by the general Ruminahi to spite the Spanish. Benalcazar was one of the 204 Spaniards to formally establish Quito as a Spanish city on December 6, 1534. I know that date is still widely celebrated in Quito. It sure is. So, Quito prospered during the colonial era. Several religious orders, including the Franciscans, Jesuits, and the Augustinians, arrived and built elaborate churches, making the city an important center for Spanish colonial administration. Something I found interesting was that during this era, Quito became known for its high-quality art that had a mixture of Christian and native themes. Paintings can feature Christian figures following local traditions. One example is that there's a famous painting in the Cathedral of Quito that has Jesus and his disciples eating guinea pig at the Last Supper. I want to see that. I also want to see that. Moving on to later history. In 1808, Napoleon invaded Spain, captured the king, and put his own brother on the throne. As a result, Spain was thrown into absolute chaos. A separate Spanish government was set up, and this resulted in civil war. During this time, a group of citizens in Quito staged a rebellion. They took control of the city and told Spanish colonial officials that they would rule Quito until the Spanish kings were restored. The viceroy in Peru sent an army to put down this rebellion. The conspirators were captured and thrown into a dungeon. On August 2, 1810, the people of the city tried to break them out, and the Spanish repelled the attack and massacred the conspirators that were being held in the prison. This assured that the city of Quito was kept on the sidelines throughout the struggle for independence in northern South America. Quito was finally liberated from the Spanish on May 24, 1822, at the Battle of Pinchincha. Two of the important heroes of the battle were Field Marshal Antonio José de Sucre and a local woman named Manuela Sianz. It wasn't until 1830 when Ecuador became an independent nation under their first president, Juan José Flores. During this time, there were constant clashes between conservatives and liberals that often turned to bloodshed. Two presidents, one from each side, were assassinated in Quito, one in 1875 and the other in 1912. Since then, Quito has continued to slowly grow and has turned into a modern metropolis. While Quito experiences occasional unrest, most protests are peaceful, and unlike many other Latin American cities, has not seen violent unrest in quite some time. That was a lot to unravel. Now that you all have a background about the history and some of the great sights to see, let's talk about how to actually get there and where to stay. In order to get to Quito, the closest airport to fly into is Mariscal Sucre International, which is about 40 minutes from the city center. It's easy to access by cab or a local bus. This airport is actually quite new. It just opened as of February 2013, replacing the old airport. The old airport was replaced due to tall buildings and nighttime fog that made landing difficult. The cool thing is that the old airport was actually turned into a metropolitan park. If you're staying in Quito, it can be affordable just like any city depending on the type of lodging. You know, whether you want to stay in a hostel or a hotel or Airbnb. 
And even the time of year you visit is going to make a difference. For example, the dry season is typically pricier. Most travelers visit June to September, which makes sense because who wants to have to lug around umbrellas on vacation? As always, I want to talk a bit about the demographics and languages spoken as well, because I think it's interesting and super helpful to know. So, around 2.8 million people live in Quito, and 97% speak Spanish. Today, Spanish spoken in Ecuador has three distinct regional variations, Amazonic, Andean, and Equatorial Coastal. English does seem to be spoken in most of the touristy areas, though. Upwards of 600 to 700,000 people visit Quito annually, mainly from North America and European countries such as France and Germany. I'd be curious to hear, did you come across anything in your research about the religious or the socioeconomic makeup of Quito? I'm guessing it would be pretty diverse given the history. Yeah, I did for the country itself as a whole when it comes to religion. About 70 or so percent of the country is Roman Catholic. In terms of socioeconomic diversity, in Quito itself, the average annual salary is estimated to be about 25,000 USD. This brings me to a small asterisk I want to add for travelers. It is a large city in a South American country, so it can be dangerous. While exploring Quito, try to keep away from large crowds of people. If you do happen to walk into an anti-government demonstration, you could be attacked or arrested on the spot, so please keep your distance. That's good to know. One of my main reasons for traveling, as you know, is the food. And I happen to be hungry. Talk to me about the cuisine in and around the city. We should do an excerpt of each episode called Talk Foodie to Me. You're always hungry. So, Ecuadorian cuisine includes classic dishes like ceviche, which is a soup with shrimp, tomato, and it's almost like a gazpacho with fish. And then there's something called enspellado, which is fish stew often served with boiled cassava. The final dish is one that's more divisive to say the least. Grilled guinea pig. I mean, I'm pretty adventurous, but I'm on the fence if I'd try that. Sign me up. I mean, I'd give it a shot. And of course now, we can't leave out your favorite segment. Okay, let's cue the spooky music. On to paranormal activity and urban legends that have been reported on in Quito. Some of the things I came across are pretty standard issue, such as UFO sightings. There have been quite a few reported since the 1960s, but most of the proof is blurry photos of what looks like a frisbee. The other more interesting one that I came across focuses around the gargoyles on the Basilica del Voto Nacional. Locals claim that they have seen gargoyles come to life at night, which is just creepy. Again, no one has actually captured any sort of proof through photos or videos, so I'm guessing this is just another one of the famous legends in Latin American folklore. Oh, and instead of a good transition, I have a joke for you. Do you have to do this every episode? Of course I do. Okay, what's a gargoyle's favorite musical? <laughs> I don't know. School of Rock? No, Fiddler on the Roof. Oh my goodness, that's just painful. Okay, okay. 
So as always, I'll end by talking about the future of the site, or the city in this case. Some of the issues or challenges that are faced with this site have to do with the government. Unfortunately, there have been major issues over the years with corruption throughout the entire country, and over $2 billion have been estimated to have been lost that were meant to go towards keeping the roads preserved. If you want to learn more about the whole ordeal, Google the Panama Papers, which shows how major players, like the Attorney General, for example, siphoned tax money into offshore accounts to buy houses, which is just incredibly frustrating. So as a result, throughout the city, they're struggling to take care of the infrastructure. The roads are pretty good, but if you leave the city itself, just know there's a good chance you could be encountering some dirt roads. One positive is that during 2003 or 2004, bus lines going north to south were constructed and many roads were extended as well, helping traffic flow. A metro subway system called the Quito Metro also began construction in 2013 and they were planning on adding 15 stations. The project cost upwards of $1.5 billion, and the line officially opened May 2nd, 2023, which is very exciting. As always, and with any World Heritage Site, if you want to support the upkeep of this marvel, you can make a donation to UNESCO World Heritage Online. The other, and even more important way that you can support these sites is by visiting them. It's a double bonus. You get to see these incredible sites, and support them at the same time. It's what we hope you do, and the main reason that we are so passionate about UNESCO sites, and also why we want to share them with you. Thank you for listening to the Global Treasures Podcast. If you would like to support the show, you can subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. See you next time.